Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 55. It's found on, found on page 615 of the Pew Bibles. The word of the Lord, Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy my wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader, and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I will send it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to this word that you have given us by your Holy Spirit, and we would be encouraged, Lord, that having given this word, preserved it, and given your own son's life for us, that you will indeed give us all good things, even now, as we consider this word and try to delve into it and try to enrich our lives by it, Lord. Oh, bless us by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Saturday, uh, Saturday a week ago, I woke up with a really bad sore throat, and so I went to the clinic that's by Payway off of Brian Irvin, and I walked in, walked to the desk. It had been several years since I'd been there. Uh, I only go there usually on the weekends if I have to go, and what do you think the first question they asked me was? Where's your insurance card? Right? Where's your insurance card? Well, actually, my insurance card was in Mississippi at the time. 
where my wife was helping her mom and dad with her uh, dad's uh, broken hip and the like. So uh, I, you know, tried to reason a little with her and say, don't you have it on file? And there's some way you could, no, no, we don't have it. You haven't been here in a long time. Um, And so I ended up calling Kay, getting the information down. She took pictures of her card, handed all that over, and sure enough, a little while later, I got my uh, shot and I got a prescription for drugs. So, <laughs> that was, uh, But that contrasts so strongly with the experience we had on a missions trip some years ago in Mexico when we were doing uh, construction, but there was another group there, a medical group of nurses and doctors, and they were doing uh, a medical mission. Uh, so they were offering free care for whoever, whomever might come. And, of course, during the week, hundreds, maybe even reaching a thousand, I don't know how many, came to their services. But there were some 30-plus people there. And you can imagine how much money had been spent to provide that clinic. Not only how much money was spent to even get there, all the supplies that were bought, that were handed out, but then think of their education collectively that had gone on for years, both in college and med school, that had provided that free medical care for that week. That gives you some picture as opposed to the... uh, card, the uh, health card that I was asked for, that gives you some picture here of what Isaiah is talking about, because we're coming to this feast with no money, but it is a feast that has been provided, as we saw back in chapter 53, by the servant who sacrificed himself for the people. And so, as as a result of what he has accomplished, as a result of the salvation and the redemption that is now able to be rolled out for free, we are invited to come and partake of that. But we must realize that this has been bought with an astonishing price of, ultimately, we know, the very blood of Jesus Christ himself. And perhaps there's something of that as to why they still say buy and eat. It, there's, there's a purchase that's been made, but you actually buy it without purchasing anything yourself, without spending your money. And it's pictured in a beautiful way. Waters point to the refreshment of it, the renewal of it. That uh, points to the Spirit's work. Uh, milk points to nourishment and strength. Wine points to abundance and riches and even exhilaration and joy. And so all of this is laid out as a feast for us to uh, sink our teeth into. And we're encouraged, regardless of anything that we have or don't have, in fact, the indication is you have nothing that you could bring to purchase this. This had to be purchased by someone else. It had to be paid for with a price you could never meet. And we know it was paid for by the very precious work of Jesus Christ himself. And so that great price having been paid and this glorious feast being opened up freely, you can imagine what it would be like to think that I can come and earn what has been purchased. 
that I could come by my own efforts and turn God's head and say, hey, you deserve this because of what you've done, because only what Christ has accomplished could provide such a feast, this true feast for us. And this feast is none other than the feast upon God Himself. Notice verse 3, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And then listen, verse 2, listen diligently to me. And so we're coming to His Word, we're coming to His declaration and promise of what He has done for us, and we're coming to God Himself. He is ultimately the feast. It is not that we're feasting on all these other things apart from God. It is God Himself that is the feast. It is God Himself that we need. It is God Himself to whom we need restoration. We are made for God. And the only feast that could satisfy us is to be able to have God Himself. And in the New Testament, this is made so plain in the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. That God comes to us, Emmanuel, God with us. He comes to us and reveals to us who God is. He reveals to us God's glory and, and beauty in the fact that God would sacrifice Himself for sinners. That God would spend lavishly His own Son in order for us to have salvation. And so the feast ultimately is Jesus Christ Himself. This feast that is endless. This feast that enriches our whole lives. And so Christ is called in Ephesians 3.8. Paul talks about preaching Christ, but he, he, he describes it this way. I was called to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. These riches that you can't, you can't fathom, you can't get to the end of them. That's, that's how glorious Christ is. Why, how could it be? It, it's that way because Christ reveals God. He reveals God in all of His glory and majesty. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, speaking of the gospel... This gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what it's about. The sheer beauty and greatness of Christ himself. That is what we feed upon. Christ is this feast for us because he reveals to us God himself. So if you're thinking in terms of your life in the areas of satisfaction and fulfillment and enrichment in life, Christ and Christ alone is the feast that you need. If you're thinking of meaning and significance and purpose for your life, Christ alone is the feast that you need and the feast alone that God offers. If you're thinking of support and comfort and shelter and sustenance in the midst of difficulty, Christ is your feast. If you're thinking of relief and acceptance and favor with God, being identified with Christ and belonging to Him, He is your feast to find these things in your life. If you're thinking of the energy and thrill and astonishment and excitement of a life project that encompasses cultural and community and the whole world itself. Christ is your feast. Christ is an unlimited, unlimited, glorious feast for us. And so the writers in the New Testament speak of this 
endless searching out of Christ. Even the prayer of Paul in Ephesians 3 is that by the power of the Spirit, we all together would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And he describes it in the height and depth and length and width of the love of Christ, as though it just goes on and on and on. So to explore Christ and know Christ becomes our whole life. We, we come to this enriching feast that has, and, and Christ has everything we need from forgiveness to transformation to purpose to meaning to satisfaction and fulfillment. It makes me think of, uh, I think I've used this illustration before, but it makes me think of Snoopy's house, okay? You know, Charles Schultz talks about this, that he created the house to be looked at from the side, and you're never supposed to ask the question, how can Snoopy lie on the you know, pinnacle of a roof? But he does, and he sleeps very well up there. But in uh, several cartoons, several of the comics, he'll be up on his roof, and he'll be smiling at the camera, and saying, and you'll hear a voice inside talking about what's inside his house, and he'll say something like, people love my Van Gogh, you know. So you realize he's got this mansion somehow inside the house, and of other things, he has a Van Gogh, you know, hanging in, in his mansion. So the inside's much bigger than you think, and it's the same way with Harry Potter's tents, right? If you've seen those movies or read the book, that you go inside a tent that looks like it's going to house eight people, and no, it's like 3,000 square foot or maybe 5,000 square feet. You know, it just goes on and on, this, this amazing interior. And that's what it is to be inside of Christ, so to speak. You know, we, we look on the outside, we, we somehow think, well, you know, I know a few facts about him, and, and that's going to do it. no endless exploration of the beauty and glory of God and its application to every aspect of your life and every aspect of culture and history. Everything about life is bound up in the person of Christ. And you can explore all things, in a sense, through that avenue and and in relationship to Him. It's kind of like uh, the neurons in your brain, they say there's something like 85 billion neurons with each of them having thousands of connections, which means there's hundreds of, there are trillions and trillions of connections. It just seems to go on and on and on and on, and, and that's Christ, okay? Christ, just the endless connections and beauties and avenues and pathways into all the richness of Christ through him. And for that reason, of course, the writer, uh, Isaiah says, uh, why, verse 2, do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why do you spend money for that which is not even food? Uh, One of uh, the characters in uh, Downton Abbey is Thomas, who's the servant. He's a pretty sleazy, corrupt guy. Uh, For those of you that watch uh, Downton Abbey and those poor people that don't, I'm I'm sorry uh, for you. But um, um, so Thomas, though, one of the things he does in the uh, movie is or the series is he tries to buy food on the black market. He does purchase. He spends all of his money, uh, buys a room, uh, rents it, supplies it fully with all of these foodstuffs. 
so that he can undersell and he can just make a killing. Well, he first sells to Downton Abbey itself, and they are cooking their breads and all this stuff, and it's just horrible, and they find out this isn't even food. He wasted his money on nothing. He was totally deceived, lost all of his money, everything was gone. That's what the writer's saying. Why would you spend your money for that which is not food? Or maybe you have gotten this week, as I do every week, most of it goes to junk, thankfully, but I get a neat letter. And I'm amazing that the minister of Nigeria and his whole committee has this money that just came available and the, the most recent one said, the Senate voted that I would get $7.9 million. I can't tell you how happy I was. This is going to come in handy, $7.9 million. <clears throat> Now, which one of you will buy that? Which one of you will send in whatever information they want? And surely somewhere along the way, it's a couple hundred bucks or whatever to get your $8 million. Why would you do that? And the writer is saying, you'll be utterly, completely deceived and you will lose everything if you don't come to this feast. If you spend your money for anything else in life and in the New Testament context for any other God, any other philosophy, any other reason to live except for Jesus Christ, you are throwing your money away. And you're throwing your life away. You'll be utterly and finally deceived. And you'll be standing there with nothing. And it will all be taken away from you. And in the full of the New Testament revelation, you will stand under God's judgment itself. So, this glorious invitation that is difficult for us to comprehend, that... And in fact, even as believers, we continue to struggle with the idea that it's not your performance that wins God's favor. It is God that wins, your, wins favor through His own Son, Jesus Christ. And this is captured so wonderfully in the hymn, the music of which Jacob was playing uh, earlier. And I just want to read a little bit of it. Many of you are familiar with this. Come, you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Already some of you may say, well, I don't know about that. But that's the way it addresses, okay? Whatever our sin, whatever our issues. And you'd hear all that and you'd think, man, you just need to stay away. That's your problem. But no, come, Come, you sinners. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He's able and willing. Doubt no more. And then it uses this very passage. Come, you needy, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify. You see, God has given you this bounty. Glorify it, honor it by receiving it. See, that's what honors him, is that you would receive this bounty that he has won for you. It even says, true belief and true repentance, every grace that, grace that brings you nigh, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. 
If you think, I don't know if I have enough faith. I don't know if I can truly repent. And I love this song that says, come to him without money, without anything, and just helplessly fall before him. He'll give you everything you even need to come to him. He'll give you all the grace you need to follow him. Just fall helplessly. Receive the feast. Bring nothing and you receive everything. That's the glorious offer of this passage. And the other set of commands has to do, is in verses 6 and 7. And I want to skip down to that because I want to relate it to this first invitation. Verses 6 and 7 are the other half of the invitation, another part of the invitation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This word near is the word used, uh, closely associated with the Redeemer, the next of kin who redeems the, the brother or uncle or cousin or whomever, uh, who because of his nearness, he redeems them. And uh, they think here that that's what Isaiah is referring to. And, and notice... Let him return to the Lord while he is near. This is, this is wonderful. There is a time period where he will be your next of kin, and he stands ready to redeem you. He's near. He's, he'll be your next of kin. Don't pass it by. See, the, while he is near, while he will be your next of kin, come to him and seek him while he may be found. There is a time for him to be found, and it is now. This is, uh, in, in, the, in verse 7, there's this forsaking of his way and, and the unrighteous man, his thoughts. And I want to associate that with verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? In other words, don't live a life apart from this God, not trusting in this God, and not becoming like this God. That's to spend your life for nothing, to waste your life. Why would you spend your money for nothing? And so in that, in that way, then forsake your way, forsake your thoughts, return to the Lord, that you may know His compassion and His abundant pardon. And verses 8 and 9 are notorious passages for being excised from their context, right? Amputated out. Because it, in there, it's a great, there are great verses just to say in general, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, okay? But it's in context. In fact, there's a careful construction here so that he says, uh, forsake, let uh, the wicked forsake his way, forsake his thoughts, and then, your, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. And then again, ways and thoughts. So it's constructed very carefully. If you know anything about the chiasm construct, there are, there's a double chiasm here. So these, this is meant to be together. So when he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, he's referring to these thoughts and ways that we're to forsake. And it's given as a reason. Forsake your thoughts and ways because they're not my thoughts and ways. And so what's intended here is that we are to adopt the character of God. That's what he's pointing out. 
You are so unlike me in character. You need to forsake your ways and you need to adopt my ways, my character, because it's so much different than your ways, your character. And I want to suggest that this finds its rich fulfillment in, again, Jesus Christ, because he fully revealed the glory and character of God. And so you have Christ in Matthew 11 saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and lowly of heart. What is he saying? Leave your ways. Leave your ways of pride and spending your life on yourself and focusing on yourself. Adopt my ways because they're higher than your ways. And what is that way? To walk humble in heart, humble, humbly and lowly in heart. Or Paul on the same basic subject in Philippians 2, where he says, uh, we're not to uh, give the exact wording, verse 3, do nothing from uh, rivalry or conceit, but in humility count one another as more important than yourselves. And, of course, when we hear that, it's like, no, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, what do you mean? How can anybody be as important as me, right? You're saying I want to count all other people as more important than me? And then he gives us the example. He says, no, have this mind in you that was in Christ because he was equal with God. And instead of holding that power and using it for himself... And, and abusing others and manipulating others with that power. You know what he did with that power? He used it to become a servant even to the point of death. Have that mind in yourself. See? Abandon your ways. Your way of self. Take up the ways of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The way of humility and servanthood and love. Or in First Peter 2, Peter is dealing with servants that are themselves being mistreated and abused by their masters even when they're doing the right thing. Can you imagine how exasperating that is, how maddening that is, just how unfair and unjust, and you want to fight back, you want to do something. And he says, um, remember your Lord Jesus who was horribly mistreated and abused And he didn't respond with threats and anger. He responded with humility and kindness and love. Be like Jesus. Don't don't walk in your ways. Walk in the ways of God. Take on the character of God as it's revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John says in 1 John 3.16 that... We know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And Jesus calls that a new commandment in John 13. He calls it the commandment in John 15. This commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. You See again, don't walk in your ways. Don't look at things the way you look at them with your thoughts of self. You love others as I have loved you. Put off your ways and take on my ways, the way of sacrifice that you can't imagine 
And Paul talks about how we can't imagine it because he says in Romans 5, we might lay down our life for somebody good, but here is a whole different kind of love and that he laid his life for sinners. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, his ways are so much higher than our ways. He's so different from us. And it gives you some idea of why our lack of love, why our lack of compassion and care grieves God so much and why he hates it so much because he is so pure and good in his love. His ways are so much higher than our ways. But in this passage in uh, Isaiah 55, he, he doesn't say, hey, his ways are higher than your ways, so forget it. It ain't happening for you. Kind of like when I... Um, was running one morning with two guys that had invited me to run in, uh, when I was with the Navigator Training Program in Birmingham in the early 70s. Yes, children, people were lived, were lived way back then. Um, <clears throat> um, so these two guys, I, I didn't know anything about them. They, they wanted to run, and I found out later one of them ran in college and the other one could have run in college. Okay, So it's not as though... We say ran for 30 minutes. It's not as though for 10 or 15 miles or 10 or 15 minutes, I mean, I kind of kept up with them and then I had to kind of fade out, right? 30 seconds. They were gone. I mean, they were gone. I couldn't see them. Ron, Rick. And I may have made two miles in my 30 minutes. Who knows how many miles they made? You know, they probably lost count of how many miles they made. Yeah, 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 right? So, that's, that's the feeling, you know, that God's just so beyond us. He's so, you know, that, and, and even this passage is used so many times to say, hey, his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our thoughts. That's not the point of the passage. The point is, forsake your ways and thoughts and return to me. You can actually become, by his astonishing grace, you can become, Start to be more like God. Having a love that's sacrificial like His love. And in the New Testament, we know the Holy Spirit indwells us. We, we read in 2 Corinthians 3 that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And then it uses these words that seem almost blasphemous to me. From glory to glory, you're being transformed. What? Wait, you're using glory to, to attach to my life right now? Yes. Yes, that's what's happening to you. Because you're not walking in your ways anymore. You're beginning to walk in the ways of God. So, you see that this, this call to forsake your way, it's not some standard, something that you, like, oh, I've got to do enough good for him to forgive me. No, it's part of his grace that releases you and calls you out of darkness into light. He calls you out of the deadening, corrupting, draining effects of sin into the vitality that springs from obedience to Him. It's call to a different life of joy and merciful, kind sacrifice. It's a call to abandon your suspicious unbelief and your reconstructions of God's character that justify your disobedience. You know, people hurt in life have this ready card they're going to throw out 
And their pain justifies the fact that I don't have to obey this God. If that's the case, and it, all of us have been affected in some way, then my pain is just my ticket for disobedience. Oh, I've been hurt so bad, I can't trust God. Oh, really? Darwin, I think you're using that as an excuse for you to hold on to your own life. I think that's what's happening. Well, this wonderful call to repentance brings its own power of accomplishment. In view of the glorious feast and the kindness and goodness of the God to give it, we run. I love that phrase in uh, Acts 20 that says, repent, repentance toward God. Repentance toward God. We're drawn to Him. As Paul says in Romans 2, it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Kindness draws me to want to put my life into His hands. And so, affected and relieved and comforted by His love and favor, the citadel of self is basically overrun by love. The castle doors are blown to bits and love floods the gates and begins to take over the life. So you see, the gospel, the goodness of God's love, it not only assures me of God's favor, but that very assurance and love begins to transform me into His image. That's the glorious gospel. Well, there's much to say in this passage about, you know, how the promise of the word, which is given in 10 and 11, is basically outlined in verses 12 and 13. So here it is. My word will accomplish everything I said. In other words, you will be brought into a new creation as he describes the changing of creation itself in verses 12 and 13. You will be a new people in a new world. You will be a transformed people in a transformed world. My word will accomplish it. So you're not only coming to a feast that transforms you now, you're coming to a feast and part of and, and the ultimate fulfillment of it is the transformation of creation itself as set forth in this passage. And he says, my word is absolutely sure it will come to pass. You sign up with me, so to speak. You put your life in my hands. You come to this feast and it will not be exhausted until all of creation is transformed. Or you can spend your money on what is not food. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you that you have given yourself so freely and graciously to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the prospect of change in our lives. We thank you for a feast in which we can be forgiven and changed and fulfilled and enriched and that it has its final consummation in the very... Uh, remaking of creation itself and our own resurrection in that last day. Oh, Lord, cause it to be beautiful to us. It is beautiful, but Lord, we have, we have hard hearts. We have blind eyes. You must continually show its beauty to us that we may uh, relish it 
and embrace it and live it out in our lives. Bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amazing uh, in that same passage of Philippians 2 that we were talking about is that it ends by saying, because he sacrificed himself on the cross, it says, therefore he shall be given a name that is above every name. That is a wonderful fulfillment of what is said at the end of our passage when he says, it shall make a name for the Lord. In other words, this grand work shall make a name for the Lord. Well, the Lord does make a name for himself. He makes a name for himself by the way he humbled himself. Because he humbled himself, Paul says, therefore he's given that name. Why? Because that's the true name of God. That's the true nature of God. He really did reveal the glory of God's love. The magnificent, sacrificial, humble love of God. He really did show it forth. And so he is exalted. And every knee bow. Every knee will proclaim him to be the Lord to God's glory. And brothers and sisters, that's what we celebrate. See, we're celebrating early. We're bowing the knee early. We're, we're exalting this Lord Jesus and what he's done. And saying, you are my Lord for what you've done. You're a Lord to be trusted. You're a Lord to be served. You're a Lord to be honored.